4. Jonah chapter 4. Y'all hungry today? I hope so. Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. You can stay seated for this reading. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. How many of you have been to uh, the movie theater within the past year? Just out of curiosity. Let me see. All right. Uh, Miss Sandra, what did you see? Just out of curiosity. Champions? Okay. So anytime you go to the movie, whether it be to see Champions or whatever recent flake you might be interested in, if you all are curious, the one I'm interested in next is the Super Mario Bros. movie. It comes out, I think it's next week, honestly. So hopefully uh, Naomi Joy comes after that movie. But um, after you watch a movie at the theater or at home, what's one of the first things that comes out of your mouth as soon as the end credits roll? One of the first things. That was good? That was bad? Okay. Anything else comes to mind? Just your first reaction. Anything. Y'all can talk to me. It's okay. Anything else? You out of popcorn? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. Yeah. The, th- the thing, what I'm getting at, what I was looking for is, usually after the movie, usually I'm watching it with somebody. Sometimes I watch movies by myself, but if I'm sitting by somebody or a family or friends, what do I ask? What'd you think? First thoughts. Good, bad? You like it, don't like it? What were your first impressions of the movie? And when I read the book of Jonah, I read this, and I come across chapter 4, and I personally ask, my immediate response after finishing the book, I ask specifically about chapter 4, why is this here? 
Why does this exist? And for some of you, right, think about, um, put on your thinking cap, particularly in the New Testament. What does the book of Jonah sound like? There's something in the New Testament that sounds very, very similar. It's structured very similarly to Jonah. Can anybody think of it off the top of your head? What was that? It's the prodigal son, bullseye. All right? Do you, do you recall that story? It's very, very similar to Jonah. Because in the prodigal son, we have the son who's with the father, relationships with the father. He runs away, goes wayward, goes and rebels, sins, is in a faraway place. He comes back, right? Jonah is delivered. He's saved. The son comes back. A huge celebration happens. There's rejoicing and partying and joy. But the story doesn't end there. It ends with the father pleading with the bitter older son. Pleading him to come in. Come rejoice. Come celebrate with me. Come celebrate that the fact that the, my dead son is now living with Jonah. Come celebrate the fact that these dead Ninevites are now living. Very similar. And it's the big question. Why is it in the Bible? Why does Jonah 4 exist? Because Jonah ended with chapter 3. It's just the perfect story in conventional story standards. It's, just, it's a beautiful Glorious ending. But then chapter 4 exists. Why? Two big reasons I'll give you. Firstly, why is it in the Bible? Because it's history. Because it actually happened. Okay, what the Bible records, you have to understand the Bible isn't exhaustive in what it records about history, but what it does record is accurate. What it does record is faithful, and the reason Jonah 4 exists, in part, is simply because this is what happened in his life in this account. And the author of Jonah is simply being faithful to what actually happened in history. But I think, you know, the, mo- the reason that's more applicable for us today, why is this here, is because Jonah 4 serves as both a mirror and as a window. What I mean by that? Well, it serves as a mirror because whether you like it or not, as we'll see, I hope you'll see, this text does reflect back who you are. As cringy as it might be, as much as you might say, I would never do that. That's just such an absurd attitude to take in life. As we unpack the text, I hope you'll see that there's a lot of you in here more than you'd like to admit. And it's a mirror that helps us see how absurd we can be in life, as Jonah's being here. But it's also a window, because in this passage, through the passage, we see the boundless mercy of God being displayed yet again to a broken, flawed messed up man, as Jonah is. That's why it's here. And I I love one of the contemporary songs. We haven't sung it here yet. One day we will. But the, the chorus of the song, it simply says, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That is a beautiful encapsulation of this book. Jonah is just a a troubled man, troubled man of God. As sinful as he might be, as wicked as the Ninevites might be, God's mercy is so much more than our brokenness. So as we wrap up Jonah today, as we look at this chapter, this is the one thing I want you to take away after you walk away. All right, This is it. This is the one message I want you to walk away with today, and it's this. God will not give up on you. God will not give up on you. The Lord never let go of Jonah, and today God will not give up on you. He will not give up on you.
no matter how many times you've sinned, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how broken you are, no matter how many times you've fallen off the straight and narrow path, no matter what, God will not give up on you. So let's walk through the text, unpack it to see how we get to that conclusion and also what that means for us today. Beginning in verse 1, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. What seemed wrong to Jonah? What is he talking about? Well, chapter 3. He's talking about the entirety of chapter 3. To Jonah, what just happened is very wrong. Now, what had just happened in chapter 3? It's arguably one of the most wide-scale evidences of God's preached word being effective. Right? 120,000 people repent. In the book of Acts, when we read about it in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives the sermon at Pentecost, we read that a few thousand people came to know Christ, that were saved. But here we have 120,000 people. They repented from their wicked ways. An outstanding display of God's mercy. The wicked were spared. They were given a second chance. They were shown mercy. And to Jonah, it seemed very wrong. Your text might say, it was, it was very wrong. He, he became angry. He became furious. He was indignant. Jonah was greatly displeased. And the verbiage is so strong here. It sounds as though Jonah just saw the Ninevites being spared. And he said, you know what, Lord? I don't think that was the best move to make. No, it's as if he said to God, how dare you save those Ninevites? How dare you spare them? They don't deserve that. Do you know what they've done to my family? What they did to my father and mother? What they've done to my children? What they've done to my neighbors in the northern part of Israel? Do you know how cruel they've been to my family? To my people? To us? They do not deserve mercy. He's very angry, very furious. What does he do with that? Yet again, all his flaws, he prays to God. He turns all of this expresses it to the Lord in heaven. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Some translations say he actually complained to the Lord. What does Jonah do there? Well, before we get into that, right there, he prayed to the Lord. I hope you notice that. The same God who heard Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, the prayer of brokenness, the prayer, the cry of desperation, the cry of sorrow and of hopelessness, the same God heard that prayer And the same God here is hearing his prayer of frustration, of anger, of bitterness, of rage even. Because it doesn't matter if you're happy, if you're heavy laden, if you're sad, you're sorrowful, you're surprised, you're enjoying life. It doesn't matter what your disposition in life might be, what your circumstances might be. God always says, come to me. Come to me with it all. I can handle it. Bring it all to me in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. So what does Jonah pray then? Verse 2. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Right here. Jonah, right here, declares beautiful theology. Beautiful doctrine of God. I know, God, that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're bounding in love. You're a God who relents from sending 
calamity. Right? Remember, this is a prophet of God, a man of God, a man who was in the Word, who read the Word, who heard the Word, who knew the Word of God. And he's merely echoing different parts of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. The Lord your God is a merciful God. Psalm 86, verse 2. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. In Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8, this is, y'all probably have heard some of this, uh, these verses before. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Many of you know this one. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jonah knew this truth. He knew this doctrine. He knew this theology. He knew those verses. He knew his Bible. And he doesn't utter this out of delight and out of enjoyment, out of rejoicing. Jonah says this in a very pejorative, hateful, bitter manner as if he was accusing God of being this, as if this were a bad thing. And you have to remember, where is Jonah coming from? I alluded to it earlier. The Jonah and the, the Israelites and so many others, not just the people of Israel, but so many others had suffered so much atrocity underneath the cruel Assyrians and Nineveh being the capital of that empire. And Jonah's just saying, why on earth would you be merciful to these people? And you might think, you know, reading this, reading chapter 4, you might think, yeah, Jonah is definitely being extreme. This is, he's so out off on the rails. He's so out there. I would never, ever exude anything similar to what he's doing here. I would simply say, we do the very same thing so often. How? Well, you know, I, I know, God, your word says this about sexuality, but, but, you know, I know your word says be patient and gracious with others, but I know your word says to be generous with my money, but I know your word says to share the gospel with the lost, to get out of my comfort zone and break those barriers, but... I know your word says, but how many of us say that exact same thing? Day after day after day. We know the truth. We know what the Bible says. We know doctrine. We know theology. We know what Scripture teaches. But how often do we just come to God's word, come to God and say, I'm not a fan of that. Whatever aspect it might be. And here's a simple reality in the Bible. Anytime you open the book, you read it, you hear it preached, there's only two kind of things you can do in response to it. Firstly, you can either submit your desires, submit your actions, submit your beliefs underneath the authority of God's Word, right? The, the authority, the, God's Word is high authority. You submit your life underneath the authority of God's Word. Or you come to the Bible, you read it, you hear it, you think about it, and you try to accommodate what it says to your own lifestyle, to your own preferences, to your own beliefs, your own 
opinions. And that's what Jonah is doing here. That's what we do so often, more often than we should. We should never do it. It's as if Jonah is saying to God, not your will, but mine be done. In fact, he he goes so far as to say, verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. I would rather my way be supreme. I would rather my way actually happen than live underneath the reality of your truth. It's very, very absurd. There's no better word for it. What does the Lord do? What does God do in response to Jonah? Does he say, Jonah, no, you're, you're, you've got some heavy accusations. Uh, let's, take a, let's take a little breather. Um, I can't handle it. Uh, does he say, Jonah, I know you've gone through a lot uh, and I know you're frustrated. It, it's gonna... What does God say here? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, or God does not give up on Jonah. God corrects Jonah. He holds on to Jonah by correcting him. Is it right for you to be angry? He questions his whole attitude in life. So we continue. Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what happened to the city. So keep in mind, where Jonah is at in the world, it's in present-day, modern-day Iraq, that region. So it's a very desert climate. And Jonah, when he goes out of the city, right, there's, being the desert, there's just this, the beating sunlight is so strong, so powerful, so overwhelming, no clouds in the sky, he needs some shade. Right? It's just human, basic human reality. So he climbs up on a little hillside, makes himself a little stick fortress uh, to sit in it, to sat in its shade. But what is he doing? Why is he there? Because he wanted to see what would happen to the city. What do you mean by that? You see, Jonah was so self-deluded. He was so bitter, so warped in his sinful mind that he still thought Nineveh is going to get it. I know God spared them just for momentarily, but I'm going to go up here and I know God is going to rain down wrath and hail down on them. So he sits and waits to see the show. But even though Jonah is throwing himself a little pity party on the hillside, God still doesn't give up on him. Why? Well, verse 6, The Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So, to me, I read that and I think Jonah wasn't the best at building stick fortresses because apparently there's some holes in his little structure so God provided some shade for him through the, the tree, the plant. We don't know exactly what it is, a leafy plant to give shade for him because he cared about Jonah. And Jonah is happy. You see that in the text. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. I'm telling you, this story is just something else. It's just so off the wall out there. So surprising. What is going on in this? So a tiny worm comes along. Chews the little plant at the roots. Uh, The plant, let's say it was 20 feet tall, if it was that big. The the tiny little worm chews the plants all morning. 
Maybe it started early in the morning, so it, it just cut one of the, the foundational root. That thing just flops over. All right? What does Jonah do? Look at the text again. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Scorching east wind, that's from the desert region. If you just think about the Middle East, so the hot wind, the hot air was blowing on him. The sun blazed on his head. He grew faint. He wanted to die. He said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah says that three times in this passage. It's better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than to live. And what does God do again? Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? He corrects Jonah again. It is. He said, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But then the final plea comes in verses 10 and 11. This is akin, again, I think of the prodigal son. This is akin to the father going out to the the older son one last time. Will you listen to me? Will you come in? Will you understand what my mercy is all about? The Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant. You didn't tend to it or make it grow. Jonah, you did not plant this tree. You didn't water it. You didn't pull the weeds around it. You did nothing to make this plant grow. I'm the one who did it for you. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Jonah, you cared about this little green little plant. If you cared about that plant so much for your own personal comfort, your own personal, you know, and your self-pity party thing, should I not care about human beings whom I have made in my image? Should I not care about the 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? They're so deluded in sin. They're so blind to reality. Should I not care for them? And even the many animals in that city, right? God cares about animals. Should I not care for things that are so much more valuable and precious than a mere plant, a mere tree. I love these people. I care for them. How much more so should I care for these lost, wayward souls if you care about this little twig you have no business, you have no personal involvement with? And if you're on the edge of your seat, right, you read this, like me, you're wondering what happens next. What, what does Jonah do? How does he respond? Does he get restored back to God? Does he still continue in his bitterness? We don't know fully. Just a little quick Bible trivia. Jonah and the sequel to Jonah, which is Nahum, which is one book away you know, after Micah, they're the two books in the Bible that end with a question. Okay, They end open-ended. So what happens next? We don't know. The book ends open-ended. But you see, the point of the story of this book, chapter 4, the the entirety of the book, it's not about what happens to Jonah. That's not the point of the story. The point of this book is God revealing himself to his people as a God of boundless mercy who shows mercy time and time and time and time again to all people, but specifically to his children, to his chosen people, to his chosen prophet, his chosen preacher, the man of God. God shows mercy to this broken man time and time and time again, to this runaway prophet. The Lord never let go of him. 
God did not give up on him when Jonah was in his absolute worst. Just exuding the worst part of his humanity. The depravity of man, just, it's just bubbling out of his mouth. It, it is ugly. Jonah responds in very ugly ways in this book. But God does not give up on him. Instead, I hope you see, right, sometimes in frustration, right, if you were dealing with somebody like this, or if you have before, what's our temptation? I'm done. Forget you. You're just so stubborn. I've tried. I have tried. It's not as though I just, I've tried multiple times. I'm done with you. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't throw his hands up. He reaches down with a gentle, loving hand of compassion and correction. Right? If you forget everything I say, please don't forget. God does not give up on you. No matter how many times you've looked at websites that you shouldn't have, no matter how many times you've taken one drink too many, no matter how many times you burst out in anger against your spouse or your kids, no matter how many times you have failed, no matter how many times we have fallen, God shows mercy to us time and time again when we do not deserve it. We do not deserve it. And I hope you see that. Jonah was blind to see his need for mercy. God showed it to the, the Ninevites, but Jonah didn't think, no, Lord, I'm good, I'm good. The people who need mercy, the people who are wrong, it's them, not me, I'm good. You and I need to see our brokenness every single day and acknowledge it before the Lord. He holds on to us. He never gives up on us. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Right, God holds on to us. He never gives up on us. That's, that's something you can slap onto a bumper sticker on a coffee mug. Right, God doesn't give up on you. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean God just kind of passively holds on to you, lets you just coexist and meander throughout life? No. God holds on to you. This is what I want to end with. God holds on to you by correcting you. God loves you so much that He receives you as you are, as broken and as flawed as you are, He receives you, but He loves you so much, too much, to leave you as you are. It's the same with Jonah. God doesn't want to leave Jonah in this brokenness, in this absurdity, in this anger, in this bitterness. God is calling him to repentance. Come to me. Get out of that that horrible thinking that you were in. Get out of that. Come to me. Receive my mercy. Taste my mercy. Enjoy it. And if you ever wonder in the Bible, what, what is the issue with God? It seems like He's a killjoy. He's got so much command, so many do's, so many don'ts. What is up with Him? Sin, what is sin? But if you were to talk to somebody who doesn't know Christ, what is sin? How would you explain it to them? Sin is any and everything that pulls you away, distracts you from tasting of God's goodness and beauty. That is why sin is so destructive. Because it pulls you away from the source of joy. It pulls you away from the fountain of living water. That is why God's heart breaks for us. Because He says, I want you to thrive. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be truly happy. I want you to be joyful. I want you to taste of love. Come to me. Come to me. 
Get away from sin. Get away from those wrong thoughts. Come to me. Church, God never gives up on you. He never gives up on you. And the only reason you and I can rejoice in that today is because Christ is the one who is let go by God. Romans 8.32 says that the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God let go of the Son. He let go, removed His restraining love and protection, removed it. The Son endured the calamity that we deserve. Jesus Christ endured the, the, the wrath that we deserve for our absurd sin so that we could have mercy. Right in the parallels from here in the prodigal son, at the end of the book, the end of the account, what is there? It's hopelessness, frustration, confusion, bitterness, anger, sorrow. I mean, don't you feel that at the end of this book immediately? Like, what's going on? Where's the hope in this? The only reason that describes the crucifixion. Frustrated, confused, I'm bitter, I'm angry, I'm sorrowful. Where is Christ? Where is the hope? Where is the good stuff? It only comes because of Easter Sunday. We're going to celebrate that in two weeks explicitly. The only reason the story has a good resolution is because of the resurrection. We can have hope today because Christ never gives up on us. Because He's living, He's alive, He's holding on to us. Church, what's the book of Jonah about? The boundless mercy of God to broken people. When you leave today, please don't forget, God never gives up on you. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sin to You. We acknowledge we're broken people. We ask that You'll please remove the blinders off of our eyes. Help us to see ourselves as who we truly are. As broken sinners. But for those who are here who are Christians, help us to see us as redeemed, saved Christians. Father, whatever we might be struggling with, whatever worries, whatever frustrations, whatever joys we might be enjoying in life. May we come to You with it all. And as You speak Your truth to us, as we read Your Word, as You correct us through the preaching of Your Word, through godly counsel, Christian community, personal time in the Scriptures, as we hear Your Word, please help us to be humble to respond to Your message of mercy. We ask, Father, that You'll help us to taste of Your mercy in a more sweet way that You'll cleanse our palates. We'll be satisfied with Your mercy, but also that we will share that message of mercy with those who don't deserve it. May we begin to show mercy and grace to our own households, to our own family, to our own friends, to our own brothers and sisters in this church, and even to those who are enemies 
who are outsiders, who do not know you. Help us to show mercy and love to all people as you have first shown to us. Only by your power, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Will you stand and sing?